right, guys. Thank you to anyone and everyone that has joined us for our second episode of Blood Sisters True Crime. We are going to be discussing the second part of the Henry Louis Wallace case today. So let's jump in. We are going to move on to August 9th slash 10th because it kind of happens in the late hours of August 9th and then switches to early hours of August 10th. And it is 1993. And this was two months after he had killed Audrey. He went to Valencia Jumper's apartment, who did not actually work at Taco Bell or Bojangles, but she was a friend of his sister's, very close friend that he had met, she had met through college, they went to college together. So again, another very large connection to Wallace, if we looked into it, but her death was never actually ruled a murder either, because he had covered it up in a specific way. Either way, he goes to her apartment and they hung out for a while, they had become friends too, and he even would later tell police that... They were very close. He considered her to be a little sister, but I mean, what did you kill your daughter? I mean, right? Some people would. Yeah. So after a while, he left her apartment, but he actually came back asking her to call Sadie, his girlfriend, telling her that he got into an argument with her or something. So I don't know if Valencia was very close with Sadie. Obviously, close enough that it seems like she could call her and work things out for him. I don't know, but. Either way, when she turned around to grab the phone, he put her in a chokehold and he forced her into the bedroom and he raped her. And after the attack, while she was getting herself dressed, he wrapped a towel around her neck and choked her until she was unconscious. And then he noticed that she had started bleeding like from her nose. So he would later tell investigators that he continued to hold the towel around her neck until she, he couldn't feel her pulse. He then started wiping down all of his fingerprints from everything, and he saw a bottle of rum in the kitchen. So he took the bottle of rum and he poured it, like, all over her body that was laying on the bed. And he poured some on the floor, on the mattress, like, all around. Must have been a pretty big bottle. But either way, he's, like, dousing the entire bedroom with this rum. And then he goes into the kitchen and he takes a can of beans and puts it on the stove and turns the stove on high. And then he, before he leaves, he goes into her room and he takes a match and throws it on her body. And then he leaves. And then he drives by like 20 minutes later and sees smoke coming out of the apartment door and stuff. And he's like, perfect. And then he drives off again. Doesn't even get out of his car. He's like, all right, good. So when police find her body, it, it was actually found just hours later because it was found the early hours of August 10th. Valencia had actually made plans with a friend of hers who was supposed to come out and hang out and they were gonna hang out kind of late. And so when he got there, this was after everything, he noticed the smoke and he immediately got a neighbor to call 911. Firefighters got the fire put out and they started investigating. They saw the burner was left on, the burnt pan of beans and stuff. And they started realizing that that's probably how the fire started and that she might've fallen asleep in the bedroom or something. Either way, they ruled her death as an accidental death by fire. Had they done more details on the autopsy, they would have realized she had signs of strangulation. But at the time, the autopsy was done by the doctor who had been told this was like a fire and pretty much assumed that this was a very accidental fire case, you know, so didn't do a lot of details on the autopsy. And you would think if, if there had been just a little bit more of an investigation as well, there would have been evidence of an accelerant, like you would have... Right. There would have been evidence of the wrong being poured. Well, and what gets me is that during the first autopsy, he does note in the autopsy report that there was no signs of soot in her lungs. There was no carbon monoxide in her blood. So she had had to have been dead before, before the, the fire. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, is that not enough reasonable cause to do a couple more tests or something you know 
but no, they didn't. So they shut that case very quickly. They called it accidental death by fire and he felt like Wallace felt like he got away with it. I mean, his crime was shut and closed for that case and it was covered up and he moved on. He moved right on to September 14th, 1993, which was just a month later. And he went to Michelle Stinson's apartment who had worked with him at Taco Bell and she was 20 years old and she had two young boys. She was going to college in hopes to become a graphic artist. So September 14th, around 11, Wallace and Michelle began like hanging out at her place and they talked for a bit. He got up to leave. She gave him a hug. We all know where that goes. He ended up telling her. He actually didn't put her in the show cold immediately. This was very similar to Shauna's case where he said, I want to have sex with you. And she was like, no. And then he put her in the choke cold. So once he began choking her, she was like, okay, we can have sex. Like, don't do that. I'll give in, you know, like, yeah. what else are you going to do? Right. So he proceeded to rape her in the kitchen, just like on the floor. Didn't even like, normally he took victims to the bedroom, but this time I guess he was just really impatient, didn't want to do that. So, or maybe her kids had been in the bedroom too. Yeah. I don't know how big the apartment was, but either way it happened on the kitchen floor. And afterwards he started choking her with a towel. And when she started gasping for air, like it wasn't, he wasn't doing it tight enough, I guess. He actually grabbed a knife and stabbed her about four times. So this is a perfect prime example of how serial killers start off with one way and then they always get worse. You know, like he's originally just strangling people, which is not good in any way, but then he moves up to using a knife. So it's like it gets more severe as time mm -hmm. goes on. And sometimes they just get bored. Like sometimes serial killers get bored of the way that they do things over and over again. So well, know, and they're becoming more frequently as well. Right. He. This is all so close together, which is another reason I'm like the fact they didn't know that the, there was a serial killer. They literally did not know until like his last murder. And they were like all working together. You would think even if investigators didn't put two and two together, you would think some people at Taco Bell would be like. There's been a lot of girls yeah. getting murdered. I was like, like, Sadie, have you thought about how everybody you're friends with who knows Wallace keeps, like, going missing and dying? Like, nobody puts these pieces together? Like, it's just weird. And it's all within very close, you know, like, the areas of the apartments and their workplaces. It's all very close radiuses, you know? And they also can tell there's never any signs of forced entry for any of the victims because he's friends with them. They let him in. They trust him. So look at the people close to those people. Like, right. immediately be like, who are they friends with? Who do they trust? And what is their common connection? Right. Literally, what... Talk about... Workplaces. Two workplaces. It's not like four different locations either. Oh, and, it's two. And, then it's, and then it's like, what person has worked at both this Taco Bell and this Bojangles? Literally. Like... And has the girlfriend who works still at Bojangles and he, while he works at Taco Bell. It's like, it's right there. You just have to put the pieces... Like, lay it down like a puzzle and just slowly connect the dots. But it took him quite a while to figure all of that out. So, afterwards, he started wiping his fingerprints off of everything in Valencia's house and her oldest son had actually woken up and started to come out of the room and he was like hey go back to sleep and the kid was like okay so the kid goes back to sleep and he was like okay so he then ends up leaving he uses a towel to wipe his fingerprints off the doorknobs and everything he takes the knife wipes it off with the towel and everything and then he just like yeets it over the fence of Michelle's backyard and then so how old were her kids? So actually, I do have that, but it is a little bit further back here. So I know that her oldest son was only three years old and her youngest son was one. So her oldest son, I saw two different ways of spelling for his name. It was either Ernest or Ernie. 
it's one of those and he was the oldest he was the one that had woken up and gone back to bed and then the youngest was just one his name was Nishan. see this is this is where he's getting more and more bold because this is when it was only a month after the last one he's kind of switching things up and stabbing her and then there's two other people even though they're young children there's two other people right in the same apartment right. so he's getting more and more bold with you know, and just leaving witnesses. Exactly. So, and that's the other thing. Police did actually talk to the three-year-old and he did kind of try to give a description of the man that he had seen. But I'm sure with the three-year-old, they're not able, he's able to be like, it was a big man. You know, like that's probably about all he really could say. I mean, he didn't know how to detail, explain the physical features and stuff. But so after the murder, the next day, Michelle's friend, Uh, James had come over. He was going to hang out with her and the boys and he knocked on the door, got no answer. And then he heard tapping coming from the window, like beside the door. And he like looked over and it's the two little boys. And they're like, Hey, mom's asleep on the kitchen floor. And he's like, huh? And he was, he'd kind of just blew it off. He's like, maybe they're playing some game. I don't know. Like whatever. He knocked again, no answer. So he starts to turn around to leave. And the oldest son gets the door open for him. The three-year-old Ernest or Ernie. And he comes in with the boys and he immediately sees Valencia's body on the floor. He grabs the kids and he gets out of there and he goes to the neighbor's house and they call police. So after they get the police out there, they again find no evidence. There's no fingerprints that they could find. And they still have no connections that they can see, apparently, that connect any of the victims or anything that's happened. But I'm also like... There's nine of you and none of y'all are talking about the fact that there's so many cases already with the same type of murder with a ligature left around their throats. Like, but okay. So after that, they um, processed what they could. Her body was transported for the autopsy. And after the autopsy came back, it showed four stab wounds and evidence of strangulation. Two of the stab wounds actually caused damage to her heart and lungs. And so her cause of death was ruled a homicide, stab wounds to the chest being the primary cause and strangulation as a contributing cause. This is where I tried to do a little bit more research on her sons to figure out their exact like ages and stuff, which we do know was three and one. I actually came across this this forum that I will have linked in the show notes for all of the, the sources, but it was called Tapa Talk, and it had a lot of different good information for this case, and I actually found a comment that Nishan had left, and I quoted it for this story because I thought it was pretty neat. He found out that he found the forum, and it was talking about his mother, Michelle Stinson, and her murder, and he commented back in 2011, January 29th, saying, I don't know anybody on here, but that happens to be my mama. And so the person who had posted it originally, the author that posted it on the forum, commented and was like, oh my goodness, that's awesome. It's awesome to hear from you. Um, I've heard some things about your mom from just news reports and stuff, but is there anything that you can tell us from your side? And it took him a few months to reply. He's only ever been on the website to reply to those two things. I think that's the only reason he ever used that account was for that specific reason. So he actually only replied one more time, but he said, hey, well, I don't know my mother that well. I didn't know my mother that well. I never really got to know or remember her. I was just a baby when it all happened. But from what my family tells me, she was a great woman who loved to draw. I've seen some of her artwork and it really is a sight to see. There's no telling what my mother could have turned into as an artist. If you have any more questions that you may want to know, please let me know. I'm free to answer any questions from my knowledge of my mother. 
So he didn't respond to the next um, comment that the author had left asking for some of her artwork pieces to be uploaded so that she could see him. But um, I just thought it was really sweet that he was, you know, he was clearly doing some research on her and wanting to learn more about his mother as much as he could probably. But, you know, I think it's nice that he had nice memories that he'd been told about his mother, but he was the youngest as well. He was the one-year-old at that time. So he really did not get much to learn about his mother. I mean, you can't remember hardly anything at one years old. Yeah. So after police had processed the scene and they spoke to the older son and got a very basic description of the man that had been at the apartment, the case went cold with the rest of the cold cases. And we are going to move on to 1994. We pass all of the holidays, months go by, and Wallace had met Vanessa Mack. She did not work with him or Sadie, but her sister worked with Wallace. So again, Taco Bell. So her sister had introduced Wallace and Vanessa, and Wallace claims that he had immediately fallen in love with her. Love at first sight. She had a four-month-old daughter named Natalia and a six or seven-year-old daughter named Natara, and he was known to adore the the girls. I mean, I think he really did want to have a child of his own. I will say he actually did have a child, and I forgot to mention that. He had a child after his um, wife and him separated. He'd gone back to Barnwell. He ended up getting into a relationship with a woman. The relationship itself didn't work out, but they did have a child together. Her name was Kendra, and aside from that, I could never find any information about how often he was able to see her or if he had visitation or how that worked out, but I do know he had a daughter. So. Is he still dating Sadie at this point? Mm -hmm. when he meets he dates Sadie, like, throughout the entire time. Okay. So, I, I'm like, does she not have, like, an inkling? Like, I don't know. Anyway, like, he's, he, at some points, he starts leaving, taking pillowcases with him for a string of, I'm like, why are you taking a pillowcase, bro? I'm like, leave a pillowcase here. What do you need that for? Anyway, so. Natara was six or seven, and if, as far as I could tell in the research, it seems that they both had different fathers. Um, Natara's father had, like, joint custody, and so the weekend that this happens, he she was actually with her father. And Vanessa, who was 25, was actually working at Carolina's Medical Center, and she was also taking some other classes as well. Very busy life. And her first daughter's father, his mother, actually had moved there to from Florida to be closer to the family and her grandchildren and stuff. She actually lived next door to Vanessa and became very close with Vanessa. Like Vanessa would call her mom and they were very close and they just, they loved each other. And Barbara, that was her like mother-in-law practically, would watch Natalia um, on a regular basis and they had like a set schedule and everything for that. So that is how she actually ended up figuring out that Vanessa had been killed because she went to go pick up Natalia that morning. So she had gone over there, I think it was 6 a.m. that she had gone over there the next morning to pick up Natalia. Um, and it was actually kind of crazy because she had just talked to Natalia, or I'm sorry, Vanessa a few days before on the phone where Vanessa confided in her that she'd had a weird feeling, a bad dream, and that if anything were to happen to her that she wanted her to promise she would take care of Natalia and raise her. Barbara was like, yeah, but nothing's going to happen, mm -hmm. right? Like, what, what are you saying? And she's like, oh, no, just in case. And she's like, okay, weird, but yeah, I got it. So after that, you know, that was a little weird. But anyway, so Wallace had gone over to her apartment on February 20th, 1994, and he actually later admitted that he wanted to rob her 
um, because he knew that she had a good job at the medical center, thought she'd have some more money on her and stuff. And during their time talking, she, like, that night, she even told him that she had just gotten her tax return back. So he's like, oh, more money. Right. So he wanted to use that money to buy drugs, and he's like, jackpot. So at one point, he kept trying to get her to give him a hug. You know, that's his best position to get the choke cold. But she didn't want to give him a hug. And she was like, no, I'm good. She probably knew he had, like, this weird crush and was like, I'm good. No, thanks. But anyway, so he was like, oh, well, can you get me a drink? And so she's like, yeah, I'll get you a drink. She goes into the kitchen, like, trying to get him a drink. And as her back is turned, he then grabs her and gets her in the choke hold. Mm. He was a pretty big guy. I'm like, you didn't, I think he, I mean, he obviously waited until they were at their most vulnerable where they were not going to be expecting him to attack them. But I'm also like, even if you did, like, you didn't have to make them turn around. Like, you yeah. would have been able to subdue, subdue them regardless. But whatever. I guess it made it easier on him. So either way, he pulled out a pillowcase that he had actually brought with him this time. He brought his own pillowcase as a form of murder um and asked for all of her money her and her bank card and pin number and so she gave it to him you know she's being choked she's like okay fine you can have it like here's the pin number and then he told her that he wanted to have sex and she was like no and he ended up he ended up moving her to the bedroom and he raped her like at some point she like i mean she didn't have a choice i mean she immediately rejected him but then he kind of just got even more violent with her and she's like okay and she got kind of scared and just gave in so then her youngest daughter natalia who was still there that night natara was with her father but natalia was there she was the one-year-old or i'm sorry the four-month-old who had been um sitting on a sofa like during this entire time she's just hanging out on the sofa thankfully she's a very young baby she has no memory of any of this but either way um they he rapes her in the bedroom and vanessa starts to get up she tells him like hey i need to go put my daughter to sleep and he's like, oh, okay. So she starts to stand up off the mattress and then he grabs her again and starts choking her again. And is like, just kidding. So then he chokes her and he uses that same pillowcase, which is just so weird. Like you brought a pillowcase with you. Like, I don't know. That's just so weird to me. I don't know. Anyway, so he wraps that around her throat. And then he also took a shirt um, that was somewhere in the room and used it to make sure that the pillowcase stayed tight around her neck and tied it in a knot. And then he waited until she was dead. And he was like, hung out, I guess. And then he checked in on Natalia, who was still on the sofa in the living room. And he said, he t later told investigators he just sat there until Natalia fell asleep. And I was like, that's so weird. But like, okay. Like, why not even like move her to a crib or something? Because like, what if she had fallen and like busted her head open or something? Thankfully, she was absolutely fine. And she to the stage she now has a baby of her own and Barbara Rippey did raise her and that was just a very sweet little moment that I saw while I was doing research very sweet but like it's just kind of odd that he's like I'm I care enough about this baby that I'm gonna sit here until she falls asleep but but right after I just murdered your mom right yeah no it's actually there are seven children that were left without mothers because of this man that is insane to me because like a lot of these children were there during this time like you know, Michelle Stinson's sons and Vanessa Mack's daughter, and then later on there's a couple other children that are involved. Like, it's just insane to me. Like, he's acting like he went through this whole thing with his wife. I want a baby. I want a baby. Then he gets his own baby. Doesn't seem like she's in his life as much because he's doing all this random shit over here. He's got a new girlfriend and stuff, and then he's willing to take all these mothers away from their babies. Like, I'm like, what? Whatever. I mean, that's me trying to make logical sense of a serial killer's mind, too, so it's yeah. not gonna work. But... Either way, after that, he ended up leaving, and he went immediately to the ATM with Vanessa's bank card, and 
he then realized she had screwed him over one last time and gave him a fake pin number. Yeah, so this is actually one amazing thing that the police are able to gather. After they find her body, they do realize her bank card was missing. And so they did their research, found out what bank she had accounts with and what card had been missing and they did get an ATM footage of him trying to use her card. However, is very, very grainy and he is very smart. He only had like part of his face showing. Mm -hmm. But they were able to see one detail which was he had a gold dangling earring that had a cross. Mm. So that actually becomes super important later which helps them to pinpoint who he was. Other than that, it kind of goes in the folder like, okay, this might come up later but for now we can't do anything with this picture of a gold earring. So... So the next morning, that's when Barbara came over around 6 a.m. to pick up Natalia like she did every Sunday. And she knocked, but the door just like kind of pushed itself open. It wasn't shut all the way. And she was like, that's weird. She goes in calling out for Vanessa. She's like, why is the door open? Why is it not locked? Then she sees Natalia who's just sitting on the sofa still. And she's like, why is this baby just sitting on the sofa? Like calling out to Vanessa, like what's going on? And then she goes into Vanessa's room and that's where she finds her. She later told police that the only thing she could see were, like, her feet. Everything else, I think, was covered by the blankets and stuff. Um, But she did feel, I think, her feet or something and said that they were cold to the touch, that she knew something had happened. So she immediately ran out. She grabbed Natalia, and she went to the neighbor's apartment and started banging on the door and had them call 911. Um, So once police got there, that's when they noticed the blood that had come out of Vanessa's nose and her ears, the strangulation, the ligature still around her neck. They noticed that her purse, all the contents had been dumped out on the bed beside her, and that's when they realized that there was the bank card missing. Went through all of that, and again, they didn't have any real evidence there, no fingerprints, no DNA, nothing that they could really take from it, but the biggest piece for them at the time was that ATM footage, which it did take a while, but it does become important later on. So after the ATM footage and Vanessa Max murder, moving on to March 9th, 1994 less than a month later and he had gone over to betty balcom's apartment who was another mother who worked at bojangles um so sadie's bojangles his girlfriend's bojangles you know Mm -hmm. whatever and um she was an assistant manager there she was 24 um and they had met between his time working there but especially after his girlfriend working there they became closer and stuff even after he had moved to taco bell So on March 9th, he had gone to her apartment and told her that, like, he needed to use the phone. And she was like, oh, okay, come on in. Like, we're friends. I know you. It's fine. So they come in, and then they, I guess he uses the phone. He talks to her for a little while, and then he gets up to leave. They hug. He puts her in a chokehold, and he was like, this is a robbery. I'm going to rob you. And she was like, what? And he was like, give me the keys, the alarm code, and the combination to the safe box at Bojangles. And she apparently was very, like, distraught during this time. Like, I mean, he had her in this chokehold and she couldn't get her thoughts together. So he told police later that it took her several minutes for her to produce, like, the information that he wanted. And after she finally gave him everything that he wanted, he let go of her. And she, he reports this to police saying that she had said, why did you do that to me? And he replies telling her that he's a sick person and he has hurt many people. So this woman, this sweet fucking woman, gives him a hug and says, I forgive you and I'll support you so that you can get the help that you need. And that pisses him off. He's like, 
I don't need help. He had just admitted to being a sick person who has hurt people. And she's like, well, that's okay. I forgive you and I'll help you. And he's like, well, no, because he got angry. He just was like, nope. So then he starts strangling her again. He grabbed her by the throat and a little scuffle ensued again where they were fighting each other a little bit. He had her on the floor and he ended up grabbing her, pulling her to her feet. And he took her to the bedroom and made her take her clothes off. And she was like, I don't want to do that. I have a rash. And she showed it to him. She's like, I have a medical issue. I have this rash. And he later told police, oh, it's just an ordinary rash. So I don't know. But that is part of his confession in there. And he then, this part gets very graphic, but it is kind of important because Betty was trying to do everything she could to get out of this situation. He ended up telling her that he wanted her to perform oral sex on him. And um, so she ends up having like his penis in her hands and she starts pulling like forcefully and scratching like by trying to get him to whatever she can do I think to kind of get herself out of the situation but he gets even more angry of course and ends up having another scuffle so like their second or third scuffle during this whole time and she actually ended up biting him on the shoulder and he she like scratched up his abdomen and stuff and he ended up getting a towel from somewhere. I don't know if he'd brought it and it was in his pocket or if it was just like laying somewhere, but he ends up getting his hands on a towel and he wraps it around her neck and he kept just tightening it until she was like barely conscious. And then he raped her. He then was like, put your clothes on and she got herself dressed and he put the towel around her neck again, demanding that she give him all of the money she had. She told Wallace that all her money was in her purse and that he could have it. And then he decided he was just going to strangle her until she was dead. So he then took a gold chain necklace that was on her neck. He then left by taking her car keys from her purse and her television, which he loaded into her car. And he um, would then drive to a pawn shop where he sold the TV and used the money for drugs. And then he went back to her apartment because, again, he had those keys. And he, like, double-checked she's dead and stuff. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to take this VCR, too. And then he, like, wipes down all of his fingerprints, and he leaves. He sold all of the stolen items for drug money, and then he kept her car for about a day and a half or two days or so until he started getting paranoid that police were following him, which, I mean, fair enough, but whatever. So he actually ends up leaving her car, like, those couple days later at a parking lot that is, like, directly across from the apartments, um, and he wiped down everything um, except the trunk. So police, when they do find this car, do end up coming across a palm print. But that won't happen for a couple days because he's still driving it at first. So when Betty didn't show up for work at Bojangles, her boss, Jeffrey, was already very cautious because Caroline Love had worked there and she had still been missing. And so he was like, this is getting weird. I don't like this. So he tried to call her. He tried to get in touch with her, never got an answer. He called her mother. And she was like, yeah, I haven't heard from her either. So he ends up just thinking, okay, well, maybe it's just like something happened or whatever. So he waits. And then the next day, she again does not show up for her next shift. And he called her mother again. And she's like, yeah, I haven't heard from her again either. Like, this is weird. So Jeffrey, the manager and another employee actually drive to Betty's apartment. They knock and try to get an answer. Nobody answers. So they call her mother again and they all decide that they need to file a missing persons report or a welfare check or something. So they contact police and um, on March 10th, a detective had gone to do like the check-in or whatever to see if she was there or if he could get in touch with her. And that is when the maintenance guy let him in and he found her 
face down in her bed with the towel like still tied around her neck and after the autopsy um her death was ruled murder homicide by strangulation with double ligatures and um it noted like the struggle that had ensued she definitely tried to fight as much as she could but again this was a very large man he was easily able to subdue a lot of his victims um so after that they processed the scene took note of the missing items and the car they you know started looking for the car but again doesn't get found for a couple days so after that it is the same day march 9th 1994 and it's the same apartment complex these are called the lake apartments this is where betty balcom lived as well as lamar woods and his girlfriend brandy henderson lamar woods was actually wallace's best friend and Lamar and his girlfriend had a 10-month-old son. Brady was 18. I'm not sure how old Lamar was, but their son was 10 months and his name was Tyrese. Um, and Wallace had actually headed over to Lamar's apartment that day before he went to Betty's. He told police that he'd gone there with the intention of like killing Brandy, but Lamar was there and Brandy wasn't. She had gone to a doctor's appointment. Lamar was there watching their son until she got back and then he went to work around five that day. So when he got there, he was a little taken back, like, oh, you're here, she's not. So he had to just, like, improvise and was like, yeah, I've been thinking about maybe leaving town, going back to my hometown. They talked for just a couple minutes, and then he left. And he found Betty Balcom's apartment in the same complex, and that is when he killed her and took her stuff and sold everything and got some drugs. And so he waited until later that evening after 5 when he knew that Lamar had gone to work to show back up to the apartment. Brandy knew him. She knew him very well because he was best friends with Lamar. Like, they were very close. She trusted him. She, other than that, was a very shy and cautious person. She did not open the door for more than two people. And it was one of Lamar's friends, I think, named Elijah, who police did look into, but nothing ever came of it. And Henry Wallace. That was it. She didn't trust anybody else. So that evening, when he went over there, she didn't think anything of it letting him into the apartment. And after they had been talking for a little while, he asked her um, for a drink, which seems to be his second motive of... Or, well, she can't get a hug yeah, when it's a drink. Right. So he gets her to grab him a cup and stuff, and she's got her back turned, and that's when he grabs her and chokes her. And she he took her into the bedroom, and she asked him if she could have her son she's like can i please hold my son can i have my son and he was like i don't think that's a good idea for what we're about to do that's a quote that he made during his confession of what had happened and i was like that's so gross but he said that he had told her he was also going to rob her as well and she was like we don't have a lot of money she's like there's 20 dollars worth of coins in this pringles can that she used to like to save money and other than that she's like there's no other money we don't have any other money in the house and he was like, well, I'm going to be taking that TV and the stereo too. And she's like, okay, that's fine. Please just take it and get out. But he's like, no. So he ends up attempting to rape her. She had already grabbed her son after he was like, get undressed. She got undressed and immediately grabbed her son. And he would later tell police that she had positioned him like with his face pointing away from whatever was going on. And she just held him like as tight as she could in her arms. But he started crying. And at some point, um, they ended up moving to Tyrese's room, I guess, where there was also like a single bed or something as well. I don't know if it was because they thought like he would stop crying if he was in a more familiar room of his like or something. But he did eventually stop crying and she continued to hold him while she was attacked and assaulted. And then... You know, he gets her to get dressed and she he then kills her. He strangles her after she's dressed and lays her body down on the bed and 
positions her however she's like face down at that point Tyrese has started crying again and he could not stop crying and Wallace said that he attempted to give him a pacifier didn't work couldn't find a bottle for him so he didn't know what to do Tyrese kept crying he didn't want neighbors to hear and think something was wrong so he ended up actually taking a pair of shorts and wrapping it around the 10 month old little boy's throat and tying it in a very tight knot and then he laid him down beside his mother and he left after he st stole the stereo and the TV that he put in Betty Balcom's car that he still had. So after that, Lamar Woods comes home from work late that night and he was already concerned because the door was unlocked and he was like, that's super weird. Like my girlfriend's pretty cautious, pretty, you know, good about keeping it locked. He knew he had locked it too before he had left. So he starts going through and he notices missing items. He's like, what the fuck is going on? Then he checks Tyrese's room first where he sees his 10 month old son like gasping for air sitting on the bed and he immediately runs over there like trying to get the shorts tied from around his neck off of him and that's when he notices Brandy's body laying right beside Tyrese in the bed and after he had gotten the shorts um taken off of Tyrese's throat he flipped he like rolled Brandy's body over and he noticed that her face was completely blue and that she had ligatures around her neck and he got those off and then he called 911. They told him to move her body from the bed to the floor so that he could try to start doing CPR, which he did attempt to do. Police got there very quickly and once they got there, they knew that there was no chance to save Brandy. However, there was still a chance for Tyrese and they immediately got him to the hospital. They got him taken to Carolina's medical center and the doctor that examined him later testified at the trial that Tyrese had stable vital signs and he was awake and breathing during the examination, but when he used a needle to take some blood, he noticed that Tyrese had failed to pull away or like react to the needle, which is just not very common for really like anybody, especially a 10 month old baby, you know, getting pricked with a needle, they usually respond some way. It's like his brain did not respond to that. So after that, he did some more tests and he testified that he believed the lack of oxygen and blood flow to the little boy's brain had altered his brain function. Around 15 to 30 minutes after the initial examination, Tyrese had become more um, interaction, uh, interacting and was more aware. Um, and to this day, he has survived and he is doing very well. He has a family of his own, is um, a child and a wife, and he was actually in one of the documentaries about Henry. So I think that's pretty neat that some of these kids like were not given a great start, you know, but made the best out of it as much as they could. So good for him. So it didn't take long for the police to get a tip about the car that had been abandoned in the parking lot across from the lake apartments where Betty and Brandy had both been murdered after Wallace had abandoned it there. Um, they immediately processed that car. No fingerprints were on the interior or the handles of the doors because he did wipe those down but again, he forgot the trunk and there was a palm print left on the back of the trunk beside the handle that they were able to process and they sent it, rushed to the lab and got a match for Henry Lewis Wallace's original first arrest back in Florida in 1988 for the hardware store break-in. And once they saw that, they also saw his mugshot from 1988 where he was wearing a gold cross dangling earring and that is when finally one detective put some pieces together and was like i recognize that from vanessa max case 
So at this point, investigators have started to connect. They know Betty Balcom and Brandy Henderson's murders were somewhat connected, very similar MO, happened in the same apartment complex and on the same day. But then they connected Vanessa Mack, and that's where they stopped connecting dots. They were like, oh, that's got to be it, just those three. So after that, they started closing in on Wallace, kind of getting some more information about him. They were like, his name has come up during certain interviews with some of the family members of victims, including Brandy and Betty, whose families had said, here's a list of people she would have let in, and Henry was on the list, and they started to kind of zone in on that. But while they started putting more plans together to locate him, he didn't stop murdering. He went on March 12th, 1994, the same day you were being born at a nearby hospital, <laughs> Wallace had gone to Deborah Slaughter's apartment, who was a 35-year-old woman that had previously worked at Bojangles with Sadie. Again, Bojangles or Taco Bell is always connected somehow. Um, he knew that she used drugs, and he was still on drugs, still doing drugs, and his drug problem was starting to get even more severe as time went on. Um, he had hoped that she would like go in with him on getting some drugs together. And they talked for a few minutes, and when he mentioned, like, buying some drugs together, she was like, I can't afford it. I've only got a little bit of money that I've got to keep for the rest of the month for my rent. So he was like, oh, well, you have money then. So that immediately gave him a new motive, which I don't know if that was his original, like, backup plan anyways. But at that point, he asked for something to drink, and while her back was turned, he pulled out a towel that he had brought with him, and he wrapped it around her throat, and she, like, fell onto the floor on her knees. And that's when all of the realization that had never hit the detectives hit Deborah, And she was like, you're the murderer. And she confronted him. And he kind of just ignored it. He blew it off. And he was like, yeah, well, I want you to give me oral sex. And she was like, I don't do that. You might as well go ahead and kill me now. That is a quote that he told investigators during his interview. She was not going to do that. And she was going to fight. She said, or he said that he had tightened the towel around her neck and just trying to be intimidating was like do you want to change your mind and she said she was not going to do it she still refused so he ended up deciding that he would just rape her so he took her to the bedroom and um, after he raped her he told her to put her clothes back on and asked her to dump out her purse and he would later tell police that he had always known that she carried a knife with her at all times in her purse so he wanted to get that away from any way that she could grab it he kicked it once she dumped out the contents of the purse and asked him asked her to give him all of the money that was in her wallet so as she's grabbing the wallet he had actually reached down and grabbed the knife that he kicked away and she pulls out $40 from her wallet and then gives it to him and then he hit her I'm not sure if he hit her because he didn't believe that that was like all of her money or what but he did hit her and then she began screaming for help like for police and somebody to help her which resulted in him tightening the towel around her neck until she fell to the floor again and then she started kicking and like banging her feet on the floor which he then tried to like sit on her legs because she was an upstairs apartment so he knew that she had neighbors downstairs oh. and he did not want them to hear all of that banging and mm -hmm. come investigate um so after that he continued to hold the towel around her neck tighter and tighter and he then started stabbing her about 20 times in the abdomen and chest area and then afterwards he grabbed another towel from the bathroom and used the second towel to tighten the ligature of the first towel around her neck and then he used another 
towel of some sort to wipe off all of the fingerprints and evidence of the knife and fingerprints from anywhere else in the apartment. And then he placed the knife back with the rest of the contents after he had like wiped his fingerprints and blood off of it with her purse and he left. And then he bought some coke and he came back to her apartment and just hung out there and smoked it like while she's just dead. I was like, that's... You couldn't go home and do your drugs? Like, no. Maybe he was closer or something. Or maybe it was Sadie or something. I don't oh. know. But I was like, that's so... Ugh. Could you imagine how like terrifying that is for her, though? Like, realizing that this is the one that... This is the person that's murdered all these people. You know, these other... You know, the other victims, I think a lot of them probably have this mindset where once he tells them to put on their clothes, they're probably like, oh, maybe... It was just rape and he'll leave. Yeah. You know? They kind of had this, didn't realize the extent of what was going to happen, but her she knew. knowing, you know, everything else that had happened, she knew there was right. no chance. She knew what was exactly. going to happen. Exactly. And it's so insane because he was so close with all of these women that even like Deborah at this time, she knew of all the murders. Like the murder of Brandy and Betty in those apartments very close to hers had just been reported. It was very well known that, that they had just been found. I mean, to know that they all still trusted him so much she was like it's definitely not him like it never crossed her mind until after it was too late and it's like the amount of trust that he had gained from all of these women it just shows how manipulative he could be but um after that he once he left the apartment for the second time after he had smoked his cocaine he actually took a coat a hat and a random butcher's knife from the kitchen and then he immediately just threw them away after he left I don't know if he wanted it to maybe look like a possible robbery and there wasn't like anything really worth stealing there or if he was just like high and wasn't thinking that probably that sounds more likely yeah because I was like that makes no sense he literally just threw them away almost immediately so I was like that's just weird but yeah so after that um, Deborah's mother had gone to her apartment the next day to um, return something she had borrowed and she already had a key to her daughter's apartment and she expected her daughter to be at work that day so she was going to just let herself in with the key to drop off the thing she'd borrowed and when she did that she noticed the door wasn't actually locked and she's like that's weird she shouldn't be here and the door should be locked and she should be at work so she comes in and she immediately found her daughter lying on the floor and she called 911 and officers got to the scene very quickly. Um, upon processing the scene, they n- took note of all the scattered contents of the purse and the ligatures around her neck, the stab wounds to her chest and her abdomen. And when the autopsy came back, stating her cause of death, um, it was due to multiple stab wounds with strangulation as a contributing source. So on March 13th, 1994, the day after he had killed Deborah Slaughter, He had gone to a friend's place, and it's unclear who this friend was. I'm not sure if it was, like, Lamar or if it was somebody else, but he had gone there, and that is where police finally located him. And they had actually been staking out his apartment, but he hadn't been back to his apartment in a couple days. I don't know where he was staying, if he'd been staying with his friend or if he'd just been kind of, like wandering around places or what but he was hanging around Deborah's doing yeah so during that time he hadn't returned back to his apartment while they were staking out his apartment because they finally had you know identified who he was but they did finally get him um at his friend's apartment and they arrested him around 5 p.m he was like hiding in the bathroom when they first came in I'm sure all of his friends are like what it was him 
what the fuck? Because apparently he literally, like, nobody ever suspected him. Like, not, even police in the beginning when they first saw his mugshot would later tell, like, reporters that the only arrest he had was a nonviolent, like, break-in. That it didn't seem like this would be him, but, you know, they had to check it out anyways. Yeah. So they arrested him and they would tell reporters that he came out very calm. He didn't fight the arrest and he just went with them. During the investigation, you know, they already had these three to four victims that they had a feeling he had killed. So Betty Balcom, Brandy Henderson, Vanessa Mack, and now they had found Deborah Slaughter's body that same day that they arrested him. And they started putting pieces together that he might have been involved in hers as well. But um, Wallace had not really wanted to talk at first like it took hours I think it was like 10 to 12 hours of um, interrogations with him but he did admit to police that he knew some of the victims but not that he had done anything just that he had known them some way or another after the interrogation started you know he's just kind of sitting there at first he's just thinking this only has to do with the larceny charge or at least that's what he's telling police they're like hey why are you here he's like oh just that larceny charge from Florida that that thing and they're like mm. Maybe not just that, though. Um, so after hours, they had all taken turns, like, switching back, playing all the cards that they could out of their deck, trying to get as much information as they could because they didn't have enough physical evidence to really have a solid case to arrest him with. They really needed him to, like, actually confess. So, and at this point, a lot of the rape kits and DNA were still on the backlog, still had not been fully processed or sent back to them with the results, and that still did not happen until after his confession, or a few months after the confession and before the trial started. Um, so at one point, another detective comes in, and he actually holds Henry's hand and prays with him, and he just has a small prayer. It said, Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. We have a serious time before us, and I ask you, lead us as we discuss this most serious issue. And something about that prayer had to resonate with Wallace, because right afterwards, he asked for a piece of paper and a pen, and he made a list of his victims' names. So he listed Caroline Love, Shauna Hawk, Audrey Spain, Valencia Jumper, Michelle Stinson, Vanessa Mack, Betty Balcom, Brandy Henderson, Deborah Slaughter, and then at the end he left a couple question marks because he did not know the name of one of his victims. He told police that he had killed a prostitute. And after some investigating on their end, they did discover that it was Sharon Nance who had been his victim. So police were extremely shocked. They expected him to confess to three, four murders, and instead he had listed out all of these names. Some of them they weren't familiar with Valencia Jumper, none of them knew about because, again, her murder had been, you know, closed. It was considered a accidental death by fire. So when he confessed to that, they were like, what? Who's that? They actually ended up doing a second autopsy on her, and that is when they finally found the evidence of strangulation, which they did after he had confessed. Which was, like, if you had just done it the first time, yeah. it wouldn't have taken long to just check like, if you didn't see any soot in her lungs or any kind of carbon monoxide in her blood, why not check? Anyway, so they um, ended up getting more details about the victims, and Henry Wallace, during his interrogation, would give all of the details. He was very detailed in everything that he told police about each victim and everything that they had done, their last movements, last words. 
he was very very detailed and his interviews have like with police his interrogation and confession have still never been released to the public as far as i could find they did release it to abc who did a documentary on him which will be listed in the show notes as well but they did not include a lot of his confession it was just a few clips of him talking here or there aside from just knowing the details that we know from the like transcripts of the case we don't know all of the details that he had told police other than what was just reported during the trial which is crazy because he does end up pleading not guilty after he confessed so i could never figure out exactly why he was making that plea but I, I can say that during, like, the prep for the trial, he actually, like, filed a few motions, which I will get into in a couple minutes. But before we talk about that, it was about 19 hours after his um, arrest, he had told the police he would take them to where Caroline Love's body had been left because she was still just considered a missing person. And with his confession, they just also needed her remains, you know? Yeah. So he takes them to, like, this really secluded little wooded area. And that is where they find the skeletal remains of Caroline Love's body. So he literally, like, gets a piece of paper, writes down all the victims, gives complete details, leads them to a body, and then pleads not guilty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes no sense. Because when I started doing the research, I was like, trial? I was like, why is there a trial? He he confessed. Like, in major detail. he's like, just kidding. It wasn't me. Right. I was like, what? But... Yeah. So after, the day after his arrest, Detective Zorn, who was actually a detective back in Barnwell, South Carolina, had been contacted by CMPD detectives who were like, hey, uh, he said that he has like some information about a case from like 1990 that happened in his hometown of Barnwell. And Detective Zorn was like, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. And immediately got to Charlotte. And as soon as he walked in with to the room with Wallace, Wallace confessed to killing Tashana Bethea. Detective Zorn said that he had always had a, you know, an inkling, but again, there was just no evidence that he could prove, and there was nothing that he could do, so her case had gone cold until his confession. He did take her confession, his confession, and he did file charges for the murder, um, but nothing ever came of that. He was never convicted of that, and I think after his conviction of the murders in Charlotte, they kind of were like, there's really no point, which we'll get to about the sentencing and stuff, but... Um, Tashana's aunt, Marguerite, had actually told news reporters, quote, I'm glad it's over. I'm just sorry it had to be him, end quote. She was very close with his mother. Like, it was a family friend. Wallace was a family friend to her, too. Oh. So she was very, very upset and, you know, shocked and also sad for Henry's family that he had been the one to do it as yeah. well. Um, now, there was also another victim, and this is the same victim that I like lightly mentioned about the pistol in the beginning um there was another victim her name was keeper lewis and on february 21st of 1992 she had accepted a ride from wallace to go to like this lounge in rock hill um and he actually ended up like raping her like somewhere in a secluded area um by threatening her with a pistol like trying to say like i'll kill you or whatever and then afterwards he apparently mocked her and was like, haha, it's not even a pistol. It's just a BB gun. Wow. So that's why I also think that with Tashanda Bethea's murder, that the gun he had was not an actual pistol. It was made to look like a pistol, but was really a BB gun, which is why he didn't use it to murder her and instead had strangled her and slit her throat and wrist. So after that, she actually um, had, she was smart enough 
to get his license plate number and she was lucky enough to get away as well so once she got his license plate number that they she actually called police and apparently it is reported that he had been arrested but again that never comes up otherwise like for police when they did the search on his palm print and stuff so i'm not sure wait what (laughs) he was arrested for they said he was arrested in rock hill for like that I don't know if there was enough evidence or what, but they ended up, she claimed to a news reporter in a newspaper, um, that he had been let out on his own recognizance. Recognizance. Recognizance? That one. Um, and apparently... So, by the time he came in, that was before all these other murders that happened in Charlotte. This happened in 1992, so, like, right around the time that he had started murdering in Charlotte, or right before. So then he... Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I'm not sure if maybe this was a mistaken identity. She thought it was the same guy and it maybe wasn't or what. But it just seemed weird to me that, like, his his arrest for that in Rock Hill didn't come up when they got the palm print back for his arrest. Right, because in... they're like, oh, he didn't have any previous violent charges. It was just the, the B&E and Florida, Exactly. But... And I'm not sure if maybe the charge that they actually charged him with was maybe not rape but had been something else or, like, like assault maybe. Yeah, or... if they didn't have enough evidence for that, I'm not sure. I couldn't find much else on it. It was, like, one newspaper article that I could find. Radio. Yeah. So she actually, after he had been let back out, like, on his own recognizance, um, she, he had started telling people, like, he was going to kill her if he could find her. And so at that point, she ended up moving back to her hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, where she moved to live with her mom and some other family members and just stayed the hell away from that area. So during the next couple years um, after his arrest in 94, everything started being put together for the trial to come out, and Wallace had decided to plead not guilty, which is still insane to me. And in November of 94, he filed some motions to suppress his interviews and confessions, stating that the, he had not been read his Miranda rights at a like an appropriate time. His Miranda rights had been read to him three hours after he began confessing. But he started confessing on his own, and during the investigation that they did, there was no reason for them to support his motion for that. They were like, well, yeah, but they were still read to you during an appropriate amount of time, and he continued to confess afterwards still, too. So it was like, you confessed after that, too, as well. Yeah. Um, It's not like once you were read these Miranda rights, you were like, oh, really? I can have a lawyer? Never mind. I don't want to talk anymore. Exactly. Um, And it was also said that you know, they did an investigation on this by listening to all of the taped confession and, you know, listened to his voice. They said that he's very calm. There were no sounds of, like, him being distressed in his interviews or confessions, that it didn't seem like he'd been coerced or was trying to come up with, like, details. It all seemed to come very naturally. Police also stated that they gave him several different breaks to sleep, to eat, to do whatever. Um, so they denied all of the claims that he had made. He also... Um, claimed that he wasn't brought in front of a magistrate soon enough, claiming that it was the morning after his confession he was brought to the magistrate, and claimed that if he had, he may not have felt coerced into confessing, which also doesn't make a lot of sense oh, to come me. On, um, all of his motions were denied, and jury selection finally began at the end of September of 96. Um, he was not charged with Tashana Bethea's murder. That happened in Barnwell, South Carolina. There was no way for them to charge that over in Charlotte. But um, he also was not charged with Sharon Nance's murder, even though he confessed. But again, he starts taking back some of these and his defense starts using, like, he was coerced kind of defense and stuff. So 
as far as Sharon Nance goes, her, the way she died, did not match any of the patterns for the other and women. she was the one that he wasn't actually able to name, right? right. So, so and, yeah. and at that point, they had never found any evidence or DNA on her, so yeah. they did not charge him with her murder. But um, after that, the trial lasted for about four months, a little right at four months, um, and the jury deliberated for 15 hours throughout, like, several different days, before they returned a guilty verdict on January 7th, 1997. Um, and he was found guilty of nine counts of murder, nine counts of rape, and like a whole bunch of other charges, like including robbery, assault with deadly weapons. There was an assault, um, like one kind of charge that was um, assault on a child under 12, which was for Tyrese Woods, right. um, stuff like that. So he was charged with all kinds of stuff. He had a whole bunch of stuff. Um, on January 29th, 1997, he was given nine death sentences. After his sentencing, he made a statement to the victim's family saying, quote, None of these women, none of your daughters, mothers, sisters, or family members in any way deserved what they got, end quote. But yet, he still did it. Right. And also during his um, confession and interviews with police, he would tell police that there was one Henry and it was bad. And that is actually a name of one of the documentaries that will also be linked in the show notes. But um, they also asked him, they were like, have you ever, like, experienced any mental illness? Do you think you might have, like, schizophrenia or something? He's like, no, it's just bad, Henry. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> like, I'm not mentally ill, but... You literally manipulated all of these women, like, got their trust, and then killed not, them. <laughs> that's just you, sir. That's just you. Right. So he is still on death row as of today. He's not been executed. He is now 57 years old, and he remains at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I also put another note on here. It was so hard to find every detail that I could. I really hope I did the case justice, but at the same time, there were so mu there was so much to this case and so many different indiscrepancies on different reports and stuff for everything. So I did as much research as I possibly could to make sure everything was reported as great as possible. Also, hello to dog. So does he have a date scheduled for executions? Um, I have, I actually did not look into that, but I can, I will. Okay, so we are back. Our dog made an appearance and it kind of threw everything off, but back to where we were, um, you had asked about an execution date for Henry Wallace. And while we were paused, I did look into it, and as far as I could tell, there is no scheduled execution date. Honestly, wouldn't be surprised if he ends up dying in prison before an execution date can be, like, scheduled. Right. Because it always takes ages for them to execute, which I don't understand, but, yeah. So, um, other than that, there is a lot more information that will be, like, noted in the show notes for some of the documentaries and a lot of the websites where I found all of the sources, because... I could not cover everything because it goes into extreme detail with some of the other stuff and yeah it was a pretty rough time for 1992 and 1994 in Charlotte for young black women and again a lot of the family's victims think that if they had been white that it might have been taken a little bit more seriously or solved a little bit faster or dots connected a little bit sooner because, again, there were seven victims that were connected by Bojangles and Taco Bell. And how many victims were there altogether? Um, technically, it was 11, including Tashonda, but it was 10 in Charlotte, and then he was only charged with the nine because he was not charged with Sharon Nance's. So. 
and it was also short in time frames like you can see like it just happened within months from each other some of them happened a month after or just a couple weeks after it was a very short time span between these murders and not a large radius either yeah. so you would have thought that they kind of could have if they had done one of those big bulletin boards with like the little red yarn dots and stuff maybe yeah. they could have pinpointed like it the cigarette and the, like, yeah. right yeah the crazy eyes and mm-hmm, stuff, like, mm-hmm. finally getting it and being like, I cracked it. Right. But, no, they did not crack it until he confessed. So, so yeah. Any more questions from you? No. Okay. No. You should watch the documentaries, though. They were actually pretty good. And, honestly, not gonna lie, the last one that I watched, Bad Henry, it started to annoy me because of the way that the investigators, who are now retired but were doing interviews, would still kind of act like, oh, we did everything we could. We did everything did you, we could, like, and that it started to get on my nerves really bad. I was like, "You really did not, though. You you're trying to act like you did to like save your ass, but you didn't do anything that you should have done, really." So yeah, that is the end of the story of Henry Lewis Wallace, and we will be back in a week or two with Katie's case that she is going to cover, and it'll be super fun. <laughs>